Whoop, whoop, whoop. So many exciting things to tell you. I'm going to keep it short and simple. Number one, my book is now free, a digital version of my book, Building Simple Habits to a Healthy Me. You can just sign up and get it for free. Number two, come and say hello on Instagram. I'm having fun on Instagram doing exciting reels. Number three, I have four amazing packages for my Positively Healthy program called Magical May exciting exciting if you want to find out more book a call and let's chat and lastly remember radiate and renew four simple habits simple but mighty habits is starting may the 15th so come and sign up for that I had a miracle cure that would guarantee you and your family living to a ripe old age whilst feeling vigorous, fit and fabulous. Would you be interested? Well, I do. It's called Healthy Living. Hello and welcome to Fit and Fabulous with me, Dr. Orlina Kerrick. Healthy Living for Families Made Easy. Hello, Michael. Welcome to Fit and Fabulous. It's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's lovely to chat to somebody who is going to tell us all the amazing things we're going to avoid, or perhaps I haven't said that right, that all the horrible things we're going to avoid. But before we dive into why and how, please could you just introduce yourself and tell people a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm, I'm Dr. Michael Kentris. I'm a clinical neurologist in the U.S., and I have a subspecialty in epilepsy, but I do mostly general neurology. And yeah, that's that's kind of my my deal. Perfect. Perfect. So on the front line, as we like to say. Yeah. yeah. And so today, what I really want to talk about is lifestyle and neurological problems. And essentially, what we can do now, I always say we've got this, you know, golden moment right now to make changes. So the big question is why should we bother? What horrible things are we going to avoid? And then obviously, what we have to do to avoid them. So over to you. So so yeah, right. You know, obviously, I'm I'm a little biased, but I, I would say developing neurologic problems is one of the things that most people would want to avoid, in particular, our minds and our memories that makes us who we are. It's kind of disorders that affect that is going to change kind of a quintessential piece of of who we are and especially you know as we you know much of the western world we have an aging population and so we're seeing more frequently different types of dementia most commonly things like alzheimer dementia or dementia from strokes things like that and you know while certain things are kind of baked into the cake, as it were, into our genetics, but there are still many things that we can do to mitigate those risks and try and set us up for, you know, like you said, maybe better golden years as well as this golden moment. But but there are, you know, like I was saying, unfortunately, that one risk factor that we really can't get away from, especially when we talk about dementia, would be age. It really is kind of an age-dependent process. So we we start seeing that, you know, after about the, the seventh decade, the, the risks start to go up. And then in those about 85 or older, almost 10% of people will start having some signs of dementia. And it might be good to kind of talk a moment about like, what is what is dementia versus like, what is just normal normal aging? And that would be perfect. Yeah, because I know I, I get a lot of folks from time to time who are like, oh, you know, I'm 
I'm just slowing down. I was like, well, this is a little bit more than that. So it's normal as we get older to, to kind of like you slow down a little bit. Our thought processes are a little bit slower, but you should still be able to accomplish those same cognitive tasks that you were able to do when you were a younger person. It's a little bit of a shift from more of working memory towards a more crystalline memory because you have all these experiences and knowledge over the course of your lifetime. You're still able to use those and sometimes maybe even get to a a solution to a problem faster than a younger, quote unquote, faster thinking person might be able to. So, so that's a normal part of aging. But when we start running into things that are more difficult, so some of the things that, you know, maybe you or a family member might be noticing about someone is like, maybe they're, they're not paying their bills on time, or maybe they're overpaying on their bills. They're forgetting the stove on, they get lost driving to familiar places, or, you know, any one of a number of things like forgetting names of very familiar family members. And they're not, you know, Sure, everyone has that name finding here and there, but as long as it comes to you within a minute or two, that's that's okay. That can be normal. Certainly, I, I do that, and I I certainly hope I don't have dementia. But but it's when these things start interfering, and in more severe situations, you start to say like, I you know they can't dress themselves right, they can't cook for themselves, they can't bathe themselves, so they become very dependent for these these quintessential activities of daily life that you need to be independent. So when we start seeing those kinds of abnormalities creeping into someone's life, then we start being more concerned. And, and is there so, a, yeah. is there a di- you, you mentioned two different types of dementia. You mentioned Alzheimer's and you mentioned stroke. And clinically, mm-hmm. as people present, is there a difference in how they present? Or is that just all, you know, you and your clever diagnostics? You know, a lot of it can, like so many things, right? Simple tools are often best. So just getting the story. A lot of times with with you know Alzheimer dementia, it's kind of this very slow, gradually progressive decline in different areas of cognition. And that can, you know, the, the classic form is like memory problems, but there are many different subtypes that are a little harder to pin down from time to time. Whereas say what we call vascular dementia or dementia from recurrent strokes, you tend to have this kind of stepwise decline. Like you know, you hit a plateau, maybe you have another teeny tiny stroke, not enough to maybe bring you to hospital, but, you know, maybe there's a touch of weakness in an arm or a leg, or maybe a little bit more language problems. And it's kind of this little, you know, step, step, step down rather than a slow, gradual decline. That can be hard to sometimes draw out, but that would be kind of the classic way it would present. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people don't fall nice and neat into one box. So you do get a lot of overlap in different types of processes, especially when we talk about like Alzheimer's and then, you know, another common form be like Parkinson's related dementia and things like that. So it, it does kind of all, unfortunately, if it, it gets to a severe enough state, there often is more than one different problem going on in the background. Okay. So I think we're all agreed that any kind of dementia is something that we would like to avoid. Yes. So how do we do that? So, you know, we're thinking now in our 40s, perhaps, mm-hmm. perhaps a little bit older. How can we lead a life such that we can increase our chances? And I know you said, you know, some of it is genetic, but how can we increase right. our chances of not getting dementia? So so there are a number of risk factors that have been associated with it. So folks who have diabetes that it's not well controlled, uncontrolled blood pressure, depression has been associated with developing dementia later on, which I know has been a big thing over the last couple of years for a lot of people. Obesity 
history of heart disease in particular severe enough to list, require heart surgery, like a bypass surgery, a history of head trauma. So, so all of these are associated with developing dementia later in life. So, you know, a lot of it is kind of that, you know, heart, heart healthy is brain healthy, so to speak. In terms of diet, you know, I know it's a big thing for a lot of folks. Um, there haven't been, in, unfortunately, a lot of rigorous studies, but, you know, like the classic Mediterranean style diet has Yay! been associated. Yes. <laughs> you may not be a regular listener to my, my podcast, but basically I teach people the Mediterranean style diet. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it tastes good. It's healthy for you. What's not to like? But so yeah, it's that's been associated as well. There's a few other things that are a little less definite, but have some suggestions. So late life dementia, some people have been found to have elevated levels of homocysteine, which can sometimes be associated with B12 deficiencies, things like that, or folate deficiencies, I should say. Again, these aren't, I would say that the evidence isn't to the point where you would routinely recommend like folic acid, B6, B12 for everybody. But a lot of times when we're talking about reversible causes of dementia or what's sometimes it's not in favor in the literature right now, but or pseudo dementia is something that comes up from time to time. And again, that's kind of one of these things that can mimic dementia. And you know, that kind of goes back to like depression that's not well treated, sleep apnea or just sleep disorders in general. And that's something that's kind of emerging in the literature a little bit interestingly, something in the brain called the glymphatic system. So everyone, you know, most people are familiar with the lymphatic system in the rest of the brain. This is essentially the same thing, but in the brain. So they tacked on a G. I, unfortunately, I haven't looked into the etymology of the word. But what we find essentially is that when we're in deep sleep is that essentially it washes out those abnormal proteins, that amyloid and stuff like that, out of the brain to a degree. So folks who are having poor quality sleep or fragmented sleep, that also has been shown to potentially increase risk later in life as well. So sleep quality is also very important. And sleep apnea just tends to be kind of the more common one that we see, especially with, unfortunately, obesity being such a, a big problem in the, the world. You'll be pleased to hear that my I have four pillars. So my my first pillar is healthy eating. My second yeah. pillar is exercise that lights you up. And pillar number three is sleep. But what I do find for a lot of people being you know, parents that I talk to, young kids, like sleep mm -hmm. does get really disturbed. And, you know, lots of people have problems. I know I'm not talking about sleep apnea because obviously that's a separate issue, but right. just that it can be difficult to get a good night's sleep. And if you're a light sleeper, there are, I always say there are lots of things you can do to improve your sleep, but sometimes people are doing quite a lot of that and still not getting sleep, good sleep. But Yes. Yeah. Sleep is pillar number three. Now, I know the internet is a dangerous place to get your medical advice from. <laughs> but one of the things that I see like floating around is bread and bread and connection to Alzheimer's. So is that true? Or is that just one of those myths that we need to ignore? So I, I would say it's one of those things that is being researched that hasn't been well proven. Yeah, there's there's a lot of this gut brain hypothesis literature out there or Probably not as much as there needs to be. With Alzheimer's, I would say it's not as well established, but there is with like Parkinson's disease, a decent amount. There are actually some old experiments where they did bilateral vagus nerve uh, cuts, essentially vagotomies. And because so just to idea, explain, that's the nerve yeah. that goes from your stomach up to your brain. Yes. And vice versa as well. So, right, the vagus nerve controls like heart rate, you know, gut transport in the first two thirds of the intestines, as well as like, you know, it even controls our vocal cords to an extent. So it does a whole host of things. So obviously cutting it 
especially on both sides, is a very severe measure. And obviously, it's not routine treatment. But these were some experiments that were done, you know, in the past. And they they did find that there's potential slowing of the progression of Parkinson's in those people. Obviously, they had lots of other side effects. So it's not, again, a, a standard treatment. But it just kind of supports a little bit that gut brain hypothesis where we have some inflammatory gut process going on like maybe folks with some gluten issues or what have you, or even some sort of infection in the past that went unnoticed. And then we kind of see this retrograde, you know, or traveling up the nerve towards the brain, as opposed to going down away from the brain as it normally would. These these proteins that are causing problems later in life, and in particular with Parkinson's, not to get too into the weeds, call it alpha-synuclein. And so the family of diseases is called alpha-synucleinopathies. That's, so, too long, so, that's too long a word for my podcast. We don't do long words here. <laughs> <laughs> but, but to your point, you know, so, so it just linked those things together. So like Parkinson's, Lewy body dementia, or even much more esoterically multiple system atrophy. And these types of kind of neurodegenerative processes, these progressive neurologic declining processes can... They might have a link. Now, it's not well established in terms of bread specifically, but you know, I would I would agree with you in terms of you know I've lost a lot of weight on low carb diets myself in the past, and while I know some people get a little bit of that brain fog with it, I I think it's it's good to have a consultation with a, a good a dietitian. Although I'm biased. So here's myself. a question: yeah. How much how much bread do you eat personally? You know, it it depends on the week uh, and how stressed. But so it's I not am. like you've excluded bread because you're worried that it's going to lead to problems later on. No, no, I had a couple of grilled cheese sandwiches yesterday, so. so may, let's go with bread in moderation. I like things in yes. moderation. Moderation, yes. <laughs> Perfect, fabulous. So what I'm hearing from you is that essentially my four pillars. So I didn't tell you the last pillar. The last yeah. pillar is essentially emotional wellness. So thinking about your stress levels and your relationship with yourself and food and obviously other people. So those are the four pillars that I teach people. And essentially what you're saying is all of those four pillars are really going to help you lead or avoid problems later in life, partly because they're going to help your heart. And if you can help your heart, then you're not going to get the problem, the vascular problems that with vascular dementia. And partly because there are actually other than the vascular problems things like Alzheimer's, any other specific things that you would recommend that we do or don't do? So actually to your, you know, to your four pillars, there, there are actually studies that show increased stress. Yes. Increases your risk for dementia and uh, increased exercise reduces your, and that can be, even if you're later, you know, uh, later on in life, over the age of 65, 70, there's still data that shows that by doing exercise at that point in life, even if you hadn't done it up to then can still reduce your risk. And I would say the last thing I would, yeah, the last thing I would say is remaining cognitively active, doing things that, that make you, I I was like this one phrase I came across skull sweat, where you should be (laughs) doing things that challenge you, you know, like I know, you know, a lot of my, my little, little old lady patients who go out and play bridge and things like that, like, that's hard. If you're able to play a bridge, I'm not worried about you having dementia. Um, and, you know, well, I have to learn bridge yeah. then. <laughs> I've never played bridge. Yeah. So I tell you, here's like, I hear about this brain activity. Yeah. So what exactly does that include? Because, you know, things like uh-huh. learning a new language, yeah. crosswords, easy crosswords, puzzles, Wordle is the thing that's, you know, yeah. everyone's keen no. on. And how often do you have to do them? For how long? 
you know, that's that's something that they've looked at and there hasn't been a clear cut answer. But I mean, my my usual rule of thumb is if you spend 15, 20 minutes a day doing something, then that's probably going to be good. But that's not really rooted in evidence, unfortunately. But it shouldn't be easy. That's the thing. It should be something that pushes you that is hard to do. Like, you know, reading a novel for relaxation before bed, that's not probably going to cut it. You know, pick up one of those, you know, Western canon novels. I'll spend a few minutes with that and be like, what the heck are they trying to say here? So things that really push you to think beyond what you're comfortable doing and engage in those more challenging aspects of thinking. Um, Crosswords it is then. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, it should be something that hopefully enjoyable, but maybe a touch frustrating as well. Yes. Okay. Fabulous. And what about alcohol? So, so that's one of those things. It's like, I feel every year or two, you see another study coming out like, yes, a little bit's good for you. No, everything's bad. I think the most recent one I saw just in the last few months said that any amount of alcohol is a risk factor for dementia. But looking back a couple of years, you'll see like one to two glasses of like red wine is, you know, protective. So, I would say that it's probably, again, one of those moderation type of situations. I think this Um, is a really interesting thing, though. I'd like, you know, I'd like to hear your opinion on sort of moderate. I live in Spain. And so, you know, in Spain, Uh, in this area, you know, and in France, my mum lives in France, quite a lot of expats from the UK come over uh, and then enjoy this Mediterranean sort of retired lifestyle, which includes wine at lunch, and then again at dinner. And I think it becomes very easy for it to become habitual. Right. And people, you know, when people hear this word moderation, they think, oh, yeah, I'm just drinking in moderation. But really, my feeling is that actually it's a lot bigger risk than they 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 realize. And I do hear stories yeah. of people, you know, overdoing it and suddenly doing things like dying from liver cirrhosis or mm-hmm. even, you know, something like Werning's encephalopathy, which right. is obviously not great. So that's just to explain when your brain basically goes kaput because of perhaps you can explain it better than me. <laughs> yeah. Essentially certain parts of your brain, you, because this is usually, and unfortunately I, I see this not uncommonly in the, the area that I practice in, but uh, because of the, the alcohol abuse, you see people develop vitamin deficiencies, specifically vitamin B1 or thiamine and certain parts of the brain really require that, um, to function. And so you develop this kind of, you know, amnesia and sometimes some abnormal eye movements and confusion. A lot of times they'll have like delusions, things like that. And if you treat it aggressively, if you catch it early on, it's reversible. But if not, it becomes this Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, which is not reversible. And, you know, it, it is another, again, form of kind of severe dementia that can come on quite abruptly, in addition to just the toxic effects of the alcohol. I mean, you know, I, I like a drink, but it, it is a poison, right? <laughs> We're being very precise with our words. So in moderation, typically it would usually be like one standard serving, which is usually like considered a four ounce pour of wine for women and one to two for men in a, you know, a day. So more than that would be considered not moderate, unfortunately. Yes. And having a break, I think not doing it every single day of the week. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's one thing if like you said you're on vacation, but if you, you know, you retire in your 50s or 60s and now it's every day, well, you're probably going to shave some years off of your life, you know. That's obviously a personal decision, but I would say it's probably not the right one in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and I think people 
you know, have the right to make that decision with their eyes open. And I think quite often people don't have their eyes open and they just carry on with this habit without really realizing how dangerous it can be. Absolutely. Fabulous. So I think you have told us everything that we need to know to lead a long and healthy life from a neurological point of view. Any last words of wisdom from you? You know, I think I, you know, the four pillars that you're talking about, that's, that's pretty much everything that's going to do, you know, barring any, you know, acts of God that are going to impact your health. That's pretty much all you can do is take care of yourself and practice, you know, good, healthy habits. Healthy habits. Yes, I love it. I love it. That's exactly. (laughs) And it's really interesting that, you know, on this podcast, when I first started out, I interviewed a cardiologist and I interviewed Mm -hmm. a cancer specialist and I interviewed a diabetes specialist, like different people. And essentially, they all said exactly the same thing, more or less, which is exactly what you're saying. And, you know, that's where those four (laughs) pillars came from. It wasn't that I just invented them. I was like, hang on, these people are all saying exactly the same thing. Uh, you know, experts in their area saying you can avoid these illnesses if you do these things. And happily for us, you know, that it's all it's all the same stuff. And, you know, it's easy. And I say fun when you know how. And as you said, it's all about habits. Right. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Where can people find more of you? So I'm uh, I'm all over. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Kentris at D-R-K-E-N-T-R-I-S. And I also have a podcast called The Neurotransmitters, which you can find on pretty much all of your podcast hosts. And it's uh, it's primarily a neurology education podcast. So it's a little bit more oriented towards people in healthcare, but we do have interviews with folks as well from the community with different neurologic problems and advocates and things like that. So we do have some conversations that are more broad as well. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.